0: What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with Todd Carmichael. He's the founder of La Colombe Coffee Roasters, one of the most innovative coffee brands ever, and the inventor of the first ever draft latte in a can, which he co-founded with his partner Jean-Philippe Iberti in 1994. During our conversation, we cover everything from Todd's early days growing up in Washington, being a distance runner and finishing a marathon at age 15, working at Starbucks when they had just three locations, why he wanted to start a coffee business, and how La Colombe came to fruition, and the unique approach they took to grow the company and pioneer a whole movement within coffee. Todd also shares what it was like to be the first person ever to walk across Antarctica on his own, a feat he accomplished in 2008, and how that experience shaped the way he approaches life and business. This was one of the most interesting conversations we've had on the show so far, and Todd's passion and energy is truly infectious. We kick things off by hearing a bit about Todd's childhood.
1: So long, long ago, the um, it's maybe three or four versions of me ago. I was born and raised in you know, small town America, in the state of Washington. Uh, really, kind of around the, the agricultural environment and and big industry that was falling to pieces. Uh, so I, you know, I I came to a, of age in that environment. Uh, eventually, I made my way out of there to the big city of Seattle. Uh, I was an athlete. I was a distance runner, and so I got an entrance uh, via athletics, and then helped me pay the tuition. I used that opportunity to uh, study business. And at the same time, I had a, a part-time job working in the coffee world uh, for a small company at the time called Starbucks. They had uh, three cafes. They were pa- planning on a fourth kind of place. And uh, I worked in the factory roasting and, and dragging bags around. And I parlayed that into to a life that you know, I now continue to occupy. I've seen what, three quarters of the world's uh, countries. And uh, I've I just pushed this little seat as far as it possibly could go until I'm sitting here talking with one of my favorite podcast guys.
0: <laughs> um, I'm curious when you, you know, sometimes, you know, when kids are young, they have this like grand vision or idea of what their adult life is going to look like and what they want to be when they grow up. Did you have any of that? Or, or was it kind of just like your regular kid doing your thing and studying business and whatever comes, comes?
1: No, I mean, I, you know, in that environment, I could say that I felt uh, like a fraud um, because really, you know, what my direction was, I knew what I didn't want. And so I was able to eliminate all those things that I just did not want because I'd seen them up close. The, you know, I was raised in poverty with a very sick mother and there was really very little, uh to my life other than trying to get to the next meal kind of thing. And I I knew that I didn't, I didn't want that. You know, this was a time in America too, where, you know, a bipolar mom with no education and four kids uh, and and has no rights just really as a woman at the time meant that life was very small. You know, my world was very tiny and I didn't want that little box. I wanted to see if I couldn't stretch the boundaries and kind of sneak outside that box and live outside that box.
0: Was there, was there anyone, perhaps they were well-known celebrity or just someone within your circle that you sort of looked up to and, and, you know, kind of gained that exposure of what life could look like had, had, you know, if you could become successful or
1: do something big. No one that I could know. I mean, no one that was within arm's reach, uh, that came from, my love of adventure and men like Shackleton and explorers, you know. And so what I did was I kind of generated the perfect kind of hero in my mind from all these different characters in history that included, you know, Newton and his amazing mind and his insanity combined with Shackleton and, and adventurers and explorers. And so I, I fancied that that's the type of person I wanted to become. And I could exercise that at a young age, and I, with no parental oversight, I could, I could go and do anything I want on any mountain within hitchhiking distance. So I would Todd, play the, these things out.
2: One of the coolest parts about this podcast and having done it for at this point, you know, three plus years, is you get to see such a wide range of founders and a wide range of personalities, and you know, you we talk about their backgrounds and their early days because that makes the founder very relatable to those that are listening to our stories and to to mm-hmm. this show and you know you, you know I'm curious you talk about you know growing up in poverty and growing up with a bipolar mom as a kid how, what did that make you feel or how did you feel and did you think that you know that situation was going to be something that you were going to have for the rest of your life or were you working so hard to try to get out of that environment
1: yeah well i think what happens is at a very young age you become a a provider i mean so you have this drive to provide as long as you have that ability the family gets to stay together so you have this this incredible drive to provide for the family you have you gain this ability to self-soothe your own problems right to because you can't add to the family's problems right so you have this challenge of like, you know, correcting the things that are going around you in a way that it's, it's very young. You know, I mean, you you can deal with things at a very young age better than than most. Um, and then finally, it was, uh, you know, I knew that I had one trip round, and I, I didn't want to spend the whole thing this way. I, w- I had this huge drive to, you know, I had a globe. I had this globe that I used to stare at and memorize. And I wanted to go to every one of those colors. I didn't want to stay. So I knew, again, like what I didn't want. So it was those three things when you combine them together, kind of put you on your way. And then over time, I mean, you shift as a human, you evolve. But, you know, that is the original kind of power booster that got me off the platform. And then you would jettison that and you let another one fire and you keep firing the next ones as you go. But that's Hmm. the one that got me off the platform.
0: And and did you have this idea that perhaps you could be like a professional athlete for the rest of your career um or was that something that was not necessarily going to be like a career of yours it was it was something that you were into mm-hmm. when you were younger
1: well you know what i noticed there was this uh, olympian in my hometown and he was one of the men who helped train me and for because i qualified for nationals and i spent a lot of time his name is don Coran, and He was, uh, he got fourth, I think in Munich in the marathon, he should have got the bronze, but anyway, and he worked at a shoe store. And so I recognized that, you know, distance running was, wasn't the place that was going to provide for my family the way I wanted, but I knew that it was a vehicle that didn't get me into the university of Washington, which in my little pocket of people, that was like saying, you know, you were going to be getting your master's at Harvard. You know, it it was just untouchable. And it did. I just knew that I just had to be the fastest in all the states around me. And that was really a very simple feat because distance running is very different than most sports. It's based on how much you put into it. You know, it's not a God given gift. It's something you scratch out of the soil for yourself. And I like that. And it's it's nothing that you have to wait to be picked that you have to have your parents lobbying for you. You were the first one to the goal line or I mean, to the tape or not. And I loved the measurability of it. And I knew that if I put in X amount of work that I could, I could then be a, allowed to be where the other people are.
2: Hmm. Todd, you talk about, you know, college and what you studied, but I know that even before you did that, you were such an athletic guy, right? You also mentioned that in You finished a marathon at 15 years old, right? Tell us a little bit about that and how you even got into that and, you know, what that did to you and the rest of your life in terms of perhaps thinking about the long term, right? That life is a marathon, that your career is a marathon. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you know, did that set yourself up for more of those types of athletic
1: adventures? Oh, yeah, I mean once you get endurance in your soul, it just it, it never leaves you alone, and it becomes your modus i mean i mean my my people are used to hearing me say this. The winner is the last one standing, and it 's how I approach everything you know we We accomplish our goals by wearing that mountain down that's how we do it right it's it, Very few things that I value have come in epiphany or it's always come by grinding um and then you know later on, you know when I knew that. I needed to shift my life into another gear. I'm going to go to that one of the final stages of this rocket what I've been describing was in 2008, and I, I needed to work something out of my system. And that was I wanted to be the first man in history to walk solo across Antarctica and not die. And that's a 700 mile trek. You know, it's a, it's hard. It's very hard. It's like and when you I, did it right. Oh yeah, yeah. I did it, and um, so I was the first to do it, which is a big deal in, in endurance, the first to achieve something. And when I touched the pole, I knew that's where I would shift, and I pivoted radically based on that, saying I'm now packaging up at least physical endurance, and I'm moving it into a different arena.
2: Talk to us about that experience. I know it's a little later on in your journey and career but since we're talking about this now what was that experience in antarctica like and talk to us about some of those high points and maybe even some of those low points across you know antarctica 700 miles is no joke obviously especially doing it alone so what was your mental state like what was your physical state like give us give us some give us some background here
1: okay well i mean you go in uh huge I mean, you you have to be able to do 30 mile, like you you should be able to do two marathons a day for two months. That's, you got to be in that kind of endurance shape, but you have to have a lot of bulk on you because you're pulling 275 pounds behind you while you do this. And then you got to pack on as much fat as you can, because that's what's going to keep you alive. So, you know, I, I went in, I was a monster. I mean, you know, I'm only a 200 pound dude, but I was like, dude, I felt like Arnold and then, you know, when you get dropped on the, edge, on the edge and that airplane leaves you and there's only you, it's 60 below, it's blowing at about 50 knots, and you say to yourself, oh, crap, what have I done? I mean, that's – even if you've put in three years' work, I mean, you're ready, but your heart sinks because there's only one way out, man, and it's just hell between you and that that exit door. Uh and then for the next three to five to six days, you are still you. You're still that person who is used to seeing colors and have smells and eat warm food. And you're very still living in that Western experience, but you're forcing yourself to do something really unnatural. And you're falling in crevasses and getting yourself out. And then then there's a transition. Then you become a more ancient version of yourself. You become what I call the beast and it, this beast just kind of takes over and it doesn't get bored. It doesn't feel pain. It only gets one thing in its mind. And that is to go, 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 go. And it burns in you and not any second. You're, you know, you're pulling 14 hours a day and then you're putting your kit back together at night and you know, melting ice for water. And you never take a half a second until you reach the pole and you try to put that beast back in the box. That's kind of what it feels like. Wow. And uh was there any
0: point where like you felt like you weren't going to make it or was it like did you were you able to pace yourself enough and sort of keep your mental state and sanity and, and physical uh health that you 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 know the, the entire time you 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 believed that you were going to um get to the, get to the finish line.
1: Yeah, I mean there were a lot of harrowing experiences you know you you can imagine you know you there are weeks on end where you can't see past your own hands you know there's and it's not flat it is just bumpy and it is it is like picking through a junkyard you know it's and it's unforgiving and it's the windiest place on earth and the combination but i never really felt that until about three days from the pole because Mm -hmm. by then i'd lost about 65 pounds of my body weight wow um, my legs were like where my arms used to be kind of size and the, and you're mentally, you're just malnourished, sleep deprived. You're starting to tick on a different level and things start going wrong. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm not going to make this, you know? And then, uh, you know, over time I developed a very severe case of frostbite in my lungs. So I only had about Well, by the time I hit the pole, I had about a quarter of my lung capacity left and I couldn't breathe. I could breathe Mm -hmm. in. I just couldn't get it out again. And it was, it's touch and go, but that's, that's the track. I mean, everyone knows it's, it's a waste. It's a race of attrition. You know, you got to get there before you die.
0: <laughs> and right. And speaking of human endurance, like this is obviously pretty extreme, but what, you know, like is there something that people, just average people that aren't necessarily trying to get put themselves in those conditions can do on a daily basis that could sort of, I mean, be similar? Obviously not the same, but something that could like help with endurance.
1: Well, I mean, endurance, it depends. I mean, everything's could, most everything could be a challenge. You know, like, like there was this fear that I would never let up right? Because the deserts and the mountains. And and I said, no, you know, when I'm 90, I want to see if I can't mow my lawn. You know, it's just that's right. going to be my challenge, right? Everybody has their own challenges. And, right. you know, where you decide to, to, to exercise them depends on where you want to go. You know, ultimately, I've always found this amazing beauty in the fact that I don't belong. I just, that's the, as a kid, you feel like a fraud, right? And it was when I was 15, I did something that people like me didn't do. And I I so enjoyed the fact that there was this juxtaposition. And it reminded me of these photos that I'd seen. My sister had showed me, right? It was these photos of these little red sofas. And the first page was a little red sofa in what looked like an artist loft in Soho. But, you know, like the real old Soho. And it was just beautiful. But everything was black and white except for the red sofa. And then as you turn the pages, that red sofa was in different places, like in a carved out canoe going down the Amazon. It was like, it was all like in a dune in Namibia. It was like this little red sofa became so much more beautiful when you took it out of its natural environment. And I thought, God, that's beautiful. That's me. I'm going to live my life that way. So when I'm standing at the South Pole, that's how I feel. I feel like that little red sofa and I'm always looking for new places to put them. So Todd, I'm sure we're going to reference
2: this Antarctica Trek throughout this podcast because I think there's a lot of you know parallels to draw on, and hopefully one day if you write a book, you'll call it the little Red Sofa. But yeah. getting back on you know th- the professional you know founder track, let's call it um you know you said you studied business in college uh you know you mentioned you also worked at Starbucks uh, Did you know you know while you were in college or right after what you wanted to pursue?
1: Yeah. I mean, right after college, I knew that I needed to prove something to myself and become a professional. Now, I was really good at tax law, you know, which really, again, doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, I loved, loved studying tax law. So I took a job at a place called Ernst and Winnie at the time. Now it's called Ernst Young. And I did my stint there. I could wear my suit. I had a, you know, briefcase and a red tie and I had a yellow tie. And I, I experienced that life. And I did that really to make my family proud too, because that was just, wow, that was as high as you can go. And then I quit because uh, I wanted to go and find what I was meant to do. And, uh, and so I took off for Africa and what, were, what was
2: the experience like working at Starbucks and, and at what point was that? Was that in college?
1: Yeah. During college. And this was before Howard. I mean, I, we'd yeah. seen him a couple of times. He was a sales guy. You know, we knew everyone in Seattle kind of knew that there was something bubbling in the coffee space. It was like the very early years of, let's say, you know, a certain musical sound. Like you knew that this was popping, but you didn't know how it was going to play out. Like, like um, grunge? Like grunge. And it was just, yeah. and I, I loved it because, you know, I had to push really hard at Starbucks to become a barista, they didn't want me to do it because, well, I looked like a farm boy at the time, right? So, And I looked like a grunge guy. And that's what grunge really is, right? It's just farm. farm. We wear farm clothes and people call it a, a fashion. It's hilarious. And um, so I I jumped ship and I went to a place called Espresso Roma. And they were from Berkeley. And they love kids like me. Long-haired, you know, like big boots and shorts and a shirt tied around their waist. And they said, yeah, this is what we want. And so I became a barista and I fricking loved it. It was like being a DJ. It was just the greatest. And I knew, man, you know, when I got into being a professional later, I I just missed it all. I missed the seed. I missed the machines. I missed the interaction with people. And I missed being that. Yeah. That DJ I wanted to go back, but I wanted to peel this onion in a different way. Did you
2: love coffee? I mean, like, or, or was it just a part of your job? And that's kind of what it was. Cause Nowadays, I mean, everybody and every kid is like, oh my God, I love coffee and I can't live without coffee. You know, Pat and I are, you know, not 30 years old yet, so we don't really know what those days were like, but give us kind of an idea of what the coffee scene was like and what people, um, you know, was it even talked about or was it
1: just coffee? I mean, that's it. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, uh, I only recognized it as something I could do, right? So the first job was dragging sacks. And I'd done that in, on the farm. I knew how to move grain sacks. So I thought, well, because guys, by this time, I had never been to a restaurant. I had never, I'd never done anything. I, I, I had no qualifications. You know. It's, so here I am in the big city looking for a small. I, mean, I couldn't sell you shoes. I mean, I, I couldn't help you try on clothes. I mean, I couldn't serve you food. I couldn't make you. So here's the job I understood, moving that bag from A to B. Now, when I got in there and I noticed the names on the bags, that started shifting my attention. It started like countries that I knew the names of and where they were. There's Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Peru, you know, and I realized, wow, these things have touched those places that I want to go. Their origins, right? Are the are, are this the world that I've always dreamt of? And so it started capturing my imagination because I knew perhaps this was a vehicle back to those places. Somehow I could ride on this train. And so- Obviously, you know, the flavors of it and where it could go was a big part of the experience. But for me, it was deeper than that. This was the bean represented a potential roadmap to my life. And I grabbed onto it. and I just didn't want to let it go. When you quit uh, the tax
2: job, what did you what did you do? Or I mean, did you have any plan or was this your time to just kind of travel the world?
1: Yeah, no, the plan was I wanted to go back to coffee and I, uh, you know, my best friend at the time, um, we had talked a lot about, uh, you know, what we thought the perfect coffee company would look like. And it was all theoretical, right? The first thing we thought was you got to go to the farm. And because we knew, or I knew that if you, you know, I worked farms my whole life, that if you took the time to to drive your truck up to our farm or the farm I was working on, you were going to get the best stuff. That's it. You know it. Because, you know, the, you, you put the other stuff through the distribution chain. And so I said, well, you got to go to the farm. So that was a very naive way of saying direct sourcing. And then, you know, I realized that, you know, the best that coffee was had to offer in the United States was really reflective of, of how you know we kind of approached it. And it didn't really include all those things that Europe had been working on for so long. Now keep in mind. This was 1988 where our beer was crap, our cheese, I think we had two kinds of cheese, orange and white, our bread sucked. I mean all I mean this was culinary America in the 80s was oh my god, it was it was what you get at you know a, a low-end grocery store. And the best stuff though was coming in the northeast and it was all influenced by Europeans, mostly the French and the Italian. So I said, "Why aren't Why aren't we looking to the French and Italian to really learn our skills about co- about coffee?" So I knew the answer lied between Italy, France, and Africa. So I left, and I indentured myself to folks in order to learn it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, talk to us about what you saw. I mean, like when you, you said you went to Africa first, mm-hmm. right? Um, what was yeah. What was that
1: like? Well, you know, the first thing I recognized was that the farms were in really dire straits in terms of how they got their product to market that they they received very little for what they were doing and there was so much more that could be had in terms of quality but you know the farmer wasn't getting they were getting just a fraction and that it wasn't anything like i had anticipated that it's all just this brokered bean that you end up getting so i knew right away that we needed to break that down That we needed to create relationships with farms, and that was just that was a big aha moment for me. Mm -hmm. And then in Europe, I realized we needed profile roast, and so I put those together. And you know, now I think America has the best beer in the world because what we did is we go to Europe, we figure it out, and then we jack it into the American level. Right? We take it to the next, you know, next logical level. We've done that with our cheeses and wines and beers. And We all and we did it with coffee, and Mm -hmm. it's that just that. Built that really simple farm boy way of approaching problems, but that's the pieces I saw. I thought I need to learn from the masters, and then I need to teach the masters. And at this
0: point, had you already met uh, Jean Philippe, who was your co-founder, or or ha- yeah. did that come after
2: you? Had- yeah,
1: because when we were kicking around on the coffee scene, he he was working for another company, and yeah, there weren't a lot of foreign people around at that time. And I heard this mm-hmm. French dude, and he was kind of I thought maybe he had one of the magic you know, kind of formulas for coffee. Instead, he just knew how to cook food like I did. And so we we kind of bonded over the fact that I have a gas stove and we cooked and we drank whiskey and cooked and played cards and just dreamed together. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, we got some money together and exercised our dreams.
0: It's, it's it's something that, you know, you can come across other people that have similar interests and in- uh, just things that perhaps you have in common that you can talk about or just hang out around, but to, to actually have the courage and um, perhaps like the will to to go out and venture off and start a business isn't as common. Like truly, like you know, people say they want to start a business or want to be an entrepreneur, but when it actually comes down to it, they don't take that leap or for whatever reason. What do you think was sort of the the reasoning behind? Like, do you think it was just serendipity that you guys? sort of clicked or was there something more to it than that?
1: Yeah. I mean, we clicked as friends, you know, and over the, no, I mean, the, I mean, you can imagine this is what 1986 and there is no, there's not a foodie in the world. There's no foodies. There's zero foodies. You have this, this love of food. That's just no one quite understands. And a lot of it is just celebration that you have it, or you have some cash to actually buy it and make it. And you meet another guy, the only one ever, in the entire city of Seattle, who took it as seriously as I did. You know, he knew, you know, what like zucchini flour, you know, fried in oil tastes like. And I'm like, oh my God, like you're the only other person. That it's like you you see in color and you meet someone who can see in color and you're, oh my God. And you become very, very close. You become brothers. And then, you know, he... He's from France, so he was alone in the United States, and I was in Seattle, I was alone there, so we became not only brothers we became i mean friends we became brothers and then you just kind of knew at one point that the trajectory of our lives were going to parallel, and you know it's twenty six twenty seven years of La alone later we still share the same office
0: and this was in while you were in college and working at Starbucks
1: or by then, yeah, I was still working at coffee, but I was working at espresso. So so
0: when you went off and worked, you know, in tax law and Ernst & Young, what was Jean-Philippe doing at at that time?
1: Well, he's a couple years younger, so he had to finish his degree. He was studying to be a pilot, uh, which, by the way, is a great degree to get if you're a coffee roaster, because there's a lot of similarities you know, checklists and doing things precisely. I mean, you can't one roast, hit the ground, next one. Right. Mm. Um, so I would given him, you know, and then it took me some time to put the money together. And so I, by the time I got my money together, ironically, the comp- coffee company he was working with sold and he graduated. And I said, well, it's time The stars are lining up. We're going to Philly. Ta- Todd you had never started a business by
2: this time that you started luck alone and um, you know you've worked in the scene but hadn't necessarily I assume raised money to start a company and you know from what you've been discussing coffee wasn't necessarily what it is today you know how did you you know how were you able to raise money how much did you raise and what were what was the pitch to investors
1: oh yeah well i I never had, I didn't I I failed to raise money for my company for the first 20 years. Uh, The seed capital, which was a hundred thousand dollars. I did the old fashioned way. I embraced poverty. I, yeah, I, I was as close as you can come to homeless, but still cool. You know, I had a little boat that I lived on in the South of France that I paid no money for. And all of my money went into uh, either. I ate fish because it was a fishing port. Right. So I lived on like hundred dollars a month and meanwhile I worked my ass off so I collected a hundred thousand dollars and it came back to America but I, I was well, 10 and I was looking good I was fit but uh right. yeah I just and then even when I got to Philly you know I took an apartment across the street you know they used to have what they called the projects here on 13th and Lombard and there were three towers and I found a tiny like a size of a let's say a, a parking stall right apartment at a a little fridge and a hot plate in it, and a futon, and I lived in that for four years i don't I just I embrace imagine. poverty,
0: yeah, um, and I can imagine around this time, you know whether it's kids from perhaps like in high school or college or even when you're at Ernst and Young, like your colleagues are like sort of coming you know perhaps going deeper into their careers and maybe making a lot of money and and you're sort of over here trying to build a business and at the same time, like you said, having to sort of embrace poverty in the meantime. Did you ever feel any some any sort of uh, I don't know um, like were you afraid at all or were you worried at all or were you looking at other people and comparing yourself and like driving yourself crazy or were you very much on this one track mind of I'm going to do this and doesn't matter what everyone else is doing um, I'm fine where I am
1: Yeah, I guess uh, you know this is going to sound weird. I mean, really, I've done four startups all within the same company. You know, the first one was the you know, the origin story of our first little cafe. And and then, and as you move forward, I think the last one, uh, was really, like I said, like 2008 where, you know, I got the company to be worth millions and it was really doing well, but I decided I wanted to put it into orbit now. And so I went out and I invented a kind of ready to drink, you, know, uh, you know, coffee in a can. I got the patents and the prototypes and I had to gamble the whole damn thing on it. And that was scary to me because mm. this time, if I fall, I fall from a height. You know, the first time you just trip and fall on the sidewalk, it's like, well, I just blew three years right. put underground together. This you one, have as much to lose. Yeah. So I do have sympathy for those sorts of people in that condition because I've experienced it here. I was, you know, I'm a father of four. you know, I got it. I got a, you know, a wife and I still have family that I'm responsible for back home and I have all this stuff, but I really want to do this thing. I, I think that I can become, I can get in the top three in America and in, in this ready to drink. And I so, had to push you know, everything on the table and it's fucking nightmarish. <laughs> so as, I, as, I, everyone,
2: as everyone else is going to be listening to this story, you know, obviously, you know, now I'm listening to it and just trying to process how, you know, how crazy this all is because now you think about, you know, starting a company and everybody tells you the first thing you have to do, you know, is put together a business plan and go raise money, you know, but then you hear stories like the one that you're telling right now, where you literally had to just eat shit for God knows how many years and work hard and grind just, you know, the old fashioned way, I guess, but really the one, the way that you own the process and you own the company and you don't have to really, to hear from other investors about how you should be running your company, right? Yeah. But talk to us about the early days of La Colombe, right? You know, how did you come up with the name? Why did you decide to go to Philadelphia? You know, what were those early conversations like between you and your business partner and how did you eventually launch?
1: Yeah, well, first, when, when I decided that I was to write the business plan down and I did that but literally with the pen, you know, it was like grass. It just, we wrote that and there was not a name. Uh, And the, yeah, there were some thoughts, you know, first I knew we were going to source coffee. So we wanted to have a symbol that meant peace. And that was really important. You know, if you spend time in, you know, the most isolated parts of the most isolated countries, you find that folks don't normally speak the language of their country and they don't read and write. Right so communicating is always going to be a challenge but symbolism is really key right and so I wanted to make sure we had a symbol that meant the international you know understanding of peace and and for the most part that is the dove um I knew that going in but then it it clicked on so many other levels because uh you know JP's very first job uh washing dishes and he was like 15 was at a place uh, in Saint-Paul-de-Vence that is known for the art on the walls. Artists used to leave art there at the end of a season to pay their bed and breakfast bills. And it's called La Colombe d'Or. And if you'd like to see Matisse, Renoir, and all these amazing painters, they're all there in this bed and breakfast. And it's La Colombe. Mm And then we kept seeing all these uh, similarities with La Colombe and it kept tying. So then when we went, hey man, the universe is talking to us. It's gotta be La Colombe, which means the dove. Of peace. Oh, interesting. Um, so, so
0: when you first open up, what's what's the vibe like? I mean, is it like are people just kind of flooding in, or did did it take a while <laughs> yeah. um, for that for it to take off?
1: Well, I mean, like most uh, startup entrepreneurs know, um, the entire universe thinks you're going to fail. You know, because that that's what they think, and that's something you have to ignore uh, because that's why the opportunity exists right? It's because everyone thinks it's going to fail. So there, you know, if Mm -hmm. there is the space,
0: if if everyone thought it was going to succeed, then everyone would be doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. Then it would be flooded. Right. The, uh, there were a lot of people who you could see, like, they felt sorry for us. Like, how could this work? Because, you know, Philly was on its knees, man. This was like the height of crack cocaine. It was harsh. It was a bitter, hard place, but perfect for us. And, uh, you know, when people came in, they kind of went, oh, these guys are putting their heart into this, and this is going to be just a tragic tale, I can tell you. Uh Day one, we opened the door, and there were a lot of, like, people who felt that way because they saw us physically do the work. We didn't hire anyone to do any of the labor, right, Um, to kind of support the local guys. And we had a day, and I remember it was $287. Um, you now, La Colombe does that in about 10 seconds, right? But it was like, yeah. and we... We were over the moon because we thought, hey, because we thought our break even was like 400 and we were halfway there. That was the reasoning. We celebrated. (laughs) I remember because we were still cheap. We went and shared a (laughs) 40-ouncer. Like, literally, (laughs) that's how bad it was. And said, we did it. Like, we did it. We're there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How far were you thinking at that point? Like, were you thinking like, oh, you know, we're going to start here and then we're going to start expanding. Like, were you thinking that far ahead or were you just, uh, you know, I'm happy with this one shop that we're opening up and we're just going to focus on this. um, And you weren't really thinking too deep, too far into the future.
1: No, we were, we were thinking big. I mean, uh, within three weeks that local newspaper came in and asked us what we were up to. And I said, well, we are the most influential coffee roasting company in the United States of America. It's just no one knows us yet. I said, we are the standard. And they were like, you're crazy. I mean, I would, I was, I was riffing like freaking, you know, musk, you know, because I yeah. said, we might be tiny, maybe, but we're going, what we wanted to do. And what really bugged us was that we were food guys and we used to read about the great chefs and the food. And like, we were just weird how we were. Right. I mean, just like some kids have Dungeons and Dragons. We had food. And, uh, what bothered us is that when you looked at a linen table, What you saw at the time is there were three things that had no identity. There was your salt, there was your pepper, and your coffee. They had no story. There was no origin, and there was nothing. They were just commodities. They were just commodities. And we set out to decommoditize the coffee experience on the linen table. And within the end of that first year, we were doing 90% of the, the, the best chefs in the country. It burned fire. I mean, it burned fast it was the first was Georges Perrier the number one chef for the country that time then we sold mm-hmm. number 2 the same day and then it was Jean-Georges Danny Meyer you know all of them just yeah.
0: where where were they sourcing their coffee from before it was just like some generic branded coffee that
1: yeah it's the same stuff that you would get at a diner It's just that yeah. there was there was no there was no differentiation and you would you would bring a coffee in and make it for chef and it was great cause we didn't have brochures or anything we would just go in people would stop us and we would say we're here to make coffee for chef and i swear to god you can go into any place in the world and say that sentence and they'll let you go in and do whatever you want so we'd go in we'd make a beautiful coffee and then we'd go find chef he would say what are you doing And we'd say we're here to make you a coffee we'd put it in front of him and just step back and then he would drink and go what the hell was that and that's how we would sell
0: I'm Yeah, it sounds like there were no other coffee companies sort of trying to go that B2B route where it's like, you know, we're going to go to these restaurants and establishments as opposed to just selling to, you know, customers walking in the door.
1: Yeah, because, you know, Howard came in with this idea that he wanted to build a cafe in every corner. So that was everybody doing that, but they were neglecting the place that we liked. So Mm. what happened is we became really, really important in the culinary scene, really important. But still, we only had one little cafe in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, and, and at then, this point, where was Starbucks? Like, had they had that vision of uh, Howard come to life already? Like, was it was there Starbucks on every corner at this point, or
1: it was just sort of building at that? At that, it was it was they, they they'd come to. I think they came to New York in '97. So we had some years, and it, it took them a while for Philly. But then you know the the whole Green Mermaid was let loose later on. But then they dabbled in B two B, but they they just don't have the mentality for it, and they don't have the grit and the grind. You know, in the it, you know, it's a hard place. The kitchens in the '90s. You know, like I said, I was raised by a bipolar woman, so I was perfectly suited for the kitchens of the '90s. I mean, I my th- my skin is so thick, and GP, his father was a purveyor, so he was raised around that same you know, high amperage chef that it would go in and out of these kitchens. So a lot of people are a little bit more tender, had a hard time in that space. And if you're not, if you don't understand the concept of endurance, like you could be somewhere until one in the morning working on it. And then the chef wants you back in at 5 a.m. You know, you've got to have this love for endurance and really thick skin. And so we cut our teeth in that environment. And so when we decided to, you know, build 30 cafes, it seemed easy. It was just really easy.
2: So Todd, you launched the cafe in 1994. And then, you know, within half a year or so, you obviously realize that there's a big need here for the restaurant culinary space. And so mm-hmm. you open up a warehouse and start producing, you know, coffee for restaurants around the country, I assume, right? Yeah. What was that experience like and how fast or how slow was La Colombe growing?
1: Well, you know, La Colombe has always kept a really nice, you know, growth pace at the beginning. The first couple of years, it was like drinking from a fire hose. That's for sure. Um, the uh, and, you know, it was it was just keeping up with it and managing it. A lot of moving parts. And we were we weren't organized in the classic corporate way either. You know, it was uh, it was a monarchy. You know, it was two of us and then people. So we you know, we interacted directly with all of our employees, and we didn't we didn't have managers, and we didn't have titles, and we it was um, it was just a it was an, a very beautiful time for I think for me, um, and we grew to a you know a pretty substantial size just doing it that way.
0: Mm. When I'm yeah. curious, when you was was that B2B side like when perhaps people went to restaurants that carried La Colombe coffee. Did they see the brand? Like, did they see that they were drinking La Cologne or was it like brandless to them at that time? Because I'm curious, like, was there any sort of cross promotion where like that eventually led them to, in, you know, like the coffee to then come into the
1: store, or perhaps buy your products down the line? I mean, they do. I mean, w- when we started, when we f- started first, coffee was selling into restaurants for about a buck 75 to $2 a pound. Right. And we started selling in at seven fifty. And because, hey man, this was the good stuff, right, which yeah. was really quite crazy, um and the second thing was is they would you would actually charge the roaster to put their name on your menu, and so we said no you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna pay us to put our name on your menu that's how it works and so what I found was that that was probably. It sounds bizarre, but it, then you would <laughs> kind of negotiate it and like, well, okay, you, maybe you pay a week early. And, it, and we ended up only on the very best. So I didn't have to deal with being on a menu where I don't, you know, it's like, come on, guys, you, you're trying to hang your brand on mine. Instead, right. you would go yeah. to, I don't know, Le Bernardin, and there it would be.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, liked, I like like. It's, it. it's a privilege to carry uh, La Colombe coffee in your restaurant. Yeah.
1: Now, you didn't do it for your personal ego or for, you know, what you did is because you're trying to redefine what the role coffee should be playing on your table. And that that it would basically we're advocating for, you know, that bean which represents to me the, the folks who have worked their butts off to make it that way. And
2: Todd, for how many years did you run La Colombe with this business, right? The B2B business, because I'll be honest, I first learned about La Colombe, it was probably, I don't know, three or four years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe a little longer at my whole food store when I saw the really cool cans with, you know, that uh, probably patented lip or patent pending lip. I think at the time it was still patent pending. I could be wrong. Um, But, you know, I just loved it, and I picked it up, and I just couldn't put it down. I kept buying it day after day, and it basically just replaced my daily coffee in the mornings, whether I was going to school or work. And that's how I found out about it. But prior to that, I had never heard of La Colombe, right? For me, it was Starbucks, Coffee Bean, Pete's, you know, not even Phil's, and then just the random coffee shops in our neighborhood. Um, I know you mentioned it earlier, but what happened when – during that pivot or not even pivot, but just the addition
1: of this new CPG uh, product. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a lot of things that come together and, you know, it, it's true, you know, over the last five years, you know, when I, when I invented the, the draft latte, so this, there is the lip piece, right. But inside of it is technology that no one else has to actually foam the beverage and create the mouthfeel that you're looking for in a latte. Um, and, the, I was searching something out because I knew there was another kind of level of our orbit I needed to find. And I, I found that. It was a lot of it based on the understanding that I'm watching coffee consumption going from hot to cold and then having the nerve to build my own factory, to lay down all my patents and bring it in and roll it out. And now it's in, I think, maybe 80% of all stores in America. Wow. And that, and that it, let me tell you, brothers, that was the jackknife. I mean, let me tell you, the G's from that are just outrageous. (laughs) You know, it just, oh my God, it almost pulled the skin off my face. Just, I mean, and both in terms of, you know, awareness, it's in terms of just gross sales. I mean, when you see a day's work, like 28, 18 wheelers leave your plant. That's crazy. And you started out in a cafe with a little roaster. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. Um, but uh, but you know it, why it did it was- take so long then? Why did it take so long
2: to do that? Or was it was it the fact that you were working on this technology and it, that took long? Right? Like what in your head said we got to do something differently? Like we're doing fine, you know, we're growing at a steady pace, but it's time to you know just fucking fly, right? Like yeah. I assume you know your partner had a lot to do with you know this flight stuff because you said he was studying to be a pilot. Yeah. But you know what what changed? I mean something must have flipped. Some switch must have just kind of flipped in your head that said, it's time to go big, right? Go even bigger.
1: Yeah, but I don't think that the objective was bigness. You know, that's not the objective. You know, the objective is you're you're trying to, you know, I'd, I'd like to influence the world around me. I want to influence coffee. And I started that work with hospitality and did. And then I said, hey. What is this thing, internet? Let's get on. Wait, we should do something. Well, so we created that platform, and that's a freaking business on its own. I mean, that thing is just. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone would love that business. I mean, millions a week, and all these connections around the country. And then you say, "Well, you know, I don't think we're retailers. We're more like purveyors. We belong in the service of other people." But let's try to open another cafe in New York and see what happens. Bam! It blows. Two blows. They're all hitting. And I don't know if you've seen, but. It's like standing in line at, you know, when the new a- Apple phone comes in from here to Beverly Hills. It's crazy. So we went, wow, we've redefined that space. And then I look around and see the world present ready for this. Because, listen, in the mid-90s, if someone came into my cafe in 19th Street, I'll always remember, there's a guy in a suit and he asked for an iced latte. And I thought he'd been hit on the ho- head with a hockey puck. That is the weirdest thing I'd ever heard, right? It was like asking for a, you know, really hot Beer, you know, it's like what? The, where does this come from? I just I what? So I made it, but that was pretty much the total cold sales that year. And year after year, I watched it climb. So when I I went I, I came back from Bolivia, I thought because I'd seen this this woman cold brewing her coffee, and I thought that's what we have to do. We need to cold brew. So I start this whole cold brew, and that touched off. And you you know you all of a sudden you saw a lot of copycats and cold brew kind of fragmented. And I went, you know what? You got to get the king, of, the, king of, the king of all drinks in the cafe world is the latte. And what defines a latte is texturized mouthfeel. It's the mm. foam. So I said, all right, now we have enough folks drinking cold. Now we have an understanding you can put coffee in a bottle or a can through the cold brew. I just need to figure out how we can get foam out of that can. And by accident, my four-year-old taught me. And I went, all right, it's crazy. What do you mean?
2: How does it tell us that story real quick?
1: Well, I mean, so I'm trying to figure out, I mean, like you can't use this Guinness thing. You can't use, there's a lot of stuff that's going on and it was just simple. So, you know, I realized that you can't supersaturate your product like you would do with, let's say, effervescent drinks like sparkling water and then package it and close it. It You can't do that. Because of the milk components and the coffee components, et cetera, right? And then my son, um, I'm teaching him how to eat out of the refrigerator without his mom knowing, right? Like every skill a young man needs to have, like, see that, touch that, she'll know. But over here, like you could take pickles, she'll never figure that out, right? There's, and I'm just jokingly going through. And he goes, how about that? And it was a whipped cream can. And I goes, yeah, you can get away with just a little bit though. So I tilt his head back and I blast some whipped cream into his mouth. And I knew. And now I knew how to do it. That's texturized <laughs> milk, baby. I just need to control yeah. it. I just need to control yeah. it. You so, know, it's and- crazy. We talk about it
0: all the time. Like, you know, since since launching La Colombe in the last even 10, 15, even five years, we've seen so many different brands come out, whether it's actual physical locations, CPG, this company gets bought out for a billion dollars and that and this, like it's just all coffee and and so how, how, and they're all so it seems like they're everyone's doing well and and I'm curious like why how how is that possible cuz there's so many other i guess parts of the industry that you could point out where it's like once it becomes so saturated everyone just sort of it's like a zero sum game how, how 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 is it that coffee um all these brands seem to be sustaining really well and have their like hardcore uh customer bases
1: well i mean first you got to realize how big coffee is i mean the it's so massive, it is the big white whale of all beverages. I mean, think of this if you take all beverages combined, yeah, without not water, right? But all beverages, no. so beers, sodas, all of them, kombucha, lemonade, anything you can drink, it doesn't add up to half of what coffee is. This is a coffee nation, we drink on average 17 ounces of it a day, and that includes babies. So, someone's making up for the babies, right? We, yeah. This is a huge, huge, huge island and not one or two or five companies can cater to all that. And then you have a moving target. You know, it's not like it, you, you know, you make your cornflakes and then your cornflakes rule and cornflakes rule forever. No, this is not the world anymore. People migrate their flavors change and it's a constant evolving thing. So it's, it, you know, you, you see companies come in and out you now. Also there's, it's like plate tectonics. You know, there's a place on earth where we're developing more surface and there's the ones that are absorbing it. If you go 10 years ago, all those companies have been bought. All those people I used to compete against, they're not very competitive anymore because fat cats own them and don't really care. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. they're slowly dying a death. And then, so there's a new crop that's coming. Now for me, that's another thing. Yeah. No, go ahead, please.
0: I was going to say that's another thing. You know, it's like once these big companies are in charge and perhaps the innovation is slower in in other areas, like technology, for example, you know, we get bought out, sometimes the innovation isn't there anymore. When, you know, when the founders initially were very scrappy and always trying to figure out how to innovate, how does that translate over to coffee? I mean, in terms of innovation, um, is it just like these different types of coffee drinks that, you know, fuse with other things that people are creating that is going to be the future of it? Or, Um, How does one innovate within the coffee category in your, in your opinion?
1: Well, I mean, first you have to accept one sentence and decide if it's true or not. And and we do. And I, I, man, I drive my people crazy with this sentence and it's this, nothing, nothing is ever finished. You have to believe that or not. Now, if you truly believe that in your soul, that means because coffee is overlooked. Like what could you possibly do with coffee? I heard that 25 years ago. Yeah, and it's like yeah. Well, baby, look what we did. I mean, look, I helped pioneer the third I, coffee, or, you know, origin. You know, going to origin, the third wave coffee movement, cold brew movement, draft latte, tap systems. I mean, it, you know, and I said, well, you know, we've participated or created every, you know, a lot of major change. Now, am I going to think just because I'm 57, it's over? No, are you kidding? It's just never done. It's just never ever done. Now. Why is it easier for founder led companies to innovate? It's the same reason that the best tech companies do can because if the person at, at the top understands the product they make, you're an innovative company. Bill Gates could code like a freak, right? And that's why you had all of that jobs, a freak. you look at all these really, really good companies, Google, Facebook, all these guys know their product. They're not sitting isolated somewhere, and R&D is like in the basement behind the boiler. You know, as soon as you get a a, a leader at top that does not actually intimately know the product, you can say goodbye to your innovation. And it's, I, I dare you, unless they buy it. There's no big companies will do that. They'll let some small companies innovate. and come in and buy it. So their R&D department is their, is their M&A.
2: Right. Is that you know? something that you think Lockalone Alone will be focused on in the future as well or no?
1: What, to buy other people and their ideas? No, I don't think so. You know, we, we had an experience early on. There was a small company, and we, we helped someone out of a jam. And we, we ended up, like, buying the company and paying them over time, and it was awful because I try to combine two cultures and that's just impossible. Like one culture sure. has to die and they don't die easily.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So true. yeah. You know, you know Todd, when it comes, you know, for me, at least, you know, we've talked to so many founders and, and, and obviously all of them have some sort of company or brand or whatever, but for me, you know, and I, I don't really compliment much on the podcast, but, but La Colombe has been so consistent in my life, at least in, you know, what I consume, in terms of, you know, let's usually in the mornings, but you guys have done such a good job of constantly bettering yourselves, and obviously that's something that you just mentioned right now that, you know, nothing's ever done, right? That Mm -hmm. we have to keep going on, keep getting better, you know, whether it's adding new flavors or adding new product lines or adding new retail stores and just even where those stores are located, right? It's just so obvious that there is a lot of attention to detail. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of concern for and attention to what the customer wants, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you guys are focused on the product, it's still about the customer, right? Does that Mm -hmm. come from you? Does that come from the top? Or is that just something that, you know, every team member is, you know, taught to, you know, be like, right? Talk to us a little bit about La Colombe's culture and how how decisions are made and how ideas come to life.
1: Well, first I think, you know, you know, a good company is the, is the, is this kind of reservoir for the best of yourself, if you're the founder and CEO. And there is something that I know about myself. and it is that I want to, I want to reside on this curve where I'm evolving. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, you're talking about a kid had never been to a restaurant and I've evolved a lot since then. So I knew I was never finished. And if it, it, the person who starts a little cafe with a little roastery and one that runs a billion dollar company with 1200 employees not the same person. You need to evolve. You need to evolve faster than your company. You need to be better every day. You need to be better than you were yesterday. Your biggest challenger is that person last week. Right. So and I I think I display that a lot. And I do kind of demand it. I demand it from from the things around me. And I will I will drive you crazy. My process is very fatiguing. Mm. It will take, I will go over it and over it and over it and over it. And people just start losing, but then they realize that's the process. So if that's two millimeters, I see that D in that font. And what does that look like? It's Helvetica because it should be something, you know, it's the, and then once they see you do that, people do it. Now Mm. the point isn't the product. The, The product isn't the point. Now this is what I criticized what we call the third wave movement where everybody was discovering all the different flavors that coffees by themselves could have. And it kind of turned into a navel gazing. It's all about the bean and they lost sight of what this was all about. Making people happy with coffee. So our aspiration, and it's been clear from the very beginning. Again, it's another thing I repeat over and over that we aspire to influence the world by making people happy with coffee. If you notice coffee is the last word, not the first word. Now it's a tool for a purpose. And what's our purpose? And that purpose is happiness. And if you can make enough people happy, you can influence the world around you. And that's yep. the recipe. And w- when I say the sentence, nothing is ever finished, I say, especially me. I always say, especially me. So I'm telling everyone around me that I'm not done yet with me. Yeah. and I'm I, curious, like,
0: Todd. How-
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Even like- now but also when you were starting off I and mean, you know we talked about uh the grunge movement and everything that was happening you know in seattle and when you were just starting off and even up until now what do you do to stay inspired like where do you turn to what do you enjoy consuming or you yeah. know enjoying experiencing that continues to inspire you to 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 be the best version of yourself to do great work
1: well you know like <clears throat> i think i'm i'm I'm, I don't think I'm unique in this way. I'm, I, I'm aware constantly every day that I'm going to die. And, and my God, what can be more inspiring than that? You're going to die. Fuck it. You better get it done now then. I mean, this is just what I'm saying. You better. You, the, death is the most inspiring thing. I drive my wife crazy, so I, I like chopper, motorcycles. And I have a circuit that I'll run around all the cemeteries because I want to remind myself. That's where I'm going to be. And you get off your chopper, man, you're ready to tear it up because it's like, come on, don't waste your turn. Quit being so afraid. Don't let this. Don't let the details get to you. Try to live as good as you can and, and, and you know, live life to the fullest. And that doesn't mean like overeat and stuff like that. But it means, come on, man, take advantage of every opportunity you have while it's still here. And then I turn and, I, you know, I'm a father. My wife and I adopted four children uh, from from Ethiopia. and. I don't know you guys if you have children yet, but my little guy, my girls, dude, like you, you get to see life fresh again, and you you get inspired, and you want to be, you know, the greatest that you possibly get. To you know, it, I I don't want them to see their dad in slippers, depressed, shuffling around the house. No, I want them to see their father taking on the world, and that inspires me to show them that, to reflect that, to, you know, and to you know, to instill that sort of thinking into them and, you know, not no, don't count your money until the damn thing's over. And I'm going to count it like, like just, I just just, or be intimidated by something. I won't let it happen. So those things together, the, the, the awareness that I'm going to be taking a long dirt nap soon and uh, I'm going to leave by four kids that I want to instill with the power of achievement. That's what inspires me.
2: Todd, you know, it's so amazing to see where you came from and how life was like for you early on, which is why we ask those questions to obviously where you are today, right? And, you know, to me, when I think about you and how that journey played out, it was a little unreasonable. At times, it was a little crazy. It was risky, right? And it wasn't the conventional way that one would do things, especially given the position that you were in, right? A lot of people, when they're dealt a hand, That's the hand that they, you know, carry the rest of their lives. You obviously said, you know what? I don't even want these cards. I don't even want to play this game. I'm going to go play another game, right? I want a whole other game. I don't even want to play poker with you guys. I don't need cards. I'm going to go get chips. I'm going to go get coffee beans, right? So what do you think made you this way, right? Like how does one who perhaps was in a similar situation or is in a similar situation or is just trying to figure it out, how can they embrace that mindset that you had and still have? Should they mm-hmm. be a little crazy? Should they intentionally be a little unreasonable? Mm-hmm. I mean, give us some sort of
1: guidance there. Well, I mean, first you have to measure your need, you know, and what do you need? The, my need was pressing, you know, I needed to create an environment that a guy like me could operate in. Now I say that because remember, you know, i you can imagine when you're the son of two bipolar people, one of whom killed himself. You know you're going to get some, you know you're going to get some of that in you, right? And so I, you know, I means that I have to deliberately take care of my brain. It means that I don't think like most people, and you know, living in a cube, you don't you don't put a brain like that in a cube, right? So I needed to find and create a universe that a guy like me could do well, and I couldn't see and around it. So it was a necessity that I could have an environment where I could live. I needed my own universe. And it was very obvious to me after doing two years at uh, the accounting firm that, yeah, I was a little golden boy. I could work four straight nights without going to sleep. But I had a hard time being consistent, right? Just I knew I couldn't do that. And it was going to stunt my career dramatically. So my need was huge. So if you really, you measure your need first. So if you need something really, really bad, I don't even think I have to nudge you very far. Now, if it's something you'd like, wow, yeah, it's going to be hard to get off. (laughs) It's going to be hard to to gamble on that one. So first start with what you you measure your need is. And if it's just for wealth, yeah, I don't know if it's worth it. Mm. I don't know if, you know, it's, I don't know if you, I guess if you really, really, really need wealth. Yeah. But if it's just for wealth, I don't know how anyone could follow through with that. And I also don't think it has anything. I, all the time people say, Todd, you're so passionate. It's your passion. Yeah, that's not true. It's nothing to do with passion. Zero to do with passion. Sure. I get passionate once in a while, but you know, Hey, passion is a human emotion and there's nothing is reliable than a human emotion. They come and go. And let me tell you, you don't walk 700 miles across Antarctica or work 27 years in coffee because of this fleeting emotion. You do it for another reason. And in my case, it's need and something else. You know, as soon as you do something with all your might for a while, it just becomes an obsession. And when it, that takes over, dude, you're golden. You're golden. The rest is yes. The rest is just movement.
0: It's a misconception that, you know, people think passion always comes before the fact, but never think about it the other way around where it's like, once, like to your point, once you, once you're obsessed with it, once it's something that you're in this sort of state of flow that you've put yourself in and things are just working out and you're good at it and, you know, things are clicking, the stars seem to be aligning. Like that's sort of also something that could develop passion, um, once, you know, after the fact. So, I mean, given that point though, like, you know. What I guess are, are there other things that you are actually passionate about other than coffee? Like, do you see yourself doing other things in terms of business ventures or projects or anything like that? Um, or, or do you do you still see a lot of opportunity in, within La Colombe and continuing yeah, that? Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, there. I should say, you know. So, yeah, like I said, one of my heroes is Newton, right? And so I, I, I knew something about him that during the plague. You know, he was, Cambridge said, so go home and quarantine. And when he was under quarantine, he, uh, he yeah, he, he created uh, basically physics and, you know, our understanding of uh, the natural world, the principles of, of science. And, you know, this guy used that time to change the trajectory of mankind. Right, which is you know, it's, I thought, well, that's sh- what I should do too. So uh, I invented a new form of mathematics. Not kidding. The uh, so
2: I, I, <laughs> I was like, it's all over the world are <laughs> about to hate you, real
1: quick. <laughs> I I created the unified theory of mathematics, and uh, no, I uh, I've been down in my lab working on different projects, and I'm I'm doing it under the guidance of my children, and I'm really beginning to create some astounding things that I think deserve a life of their own Mm. and they they're really important and i and i i I can't i can't i don't think that i'll die without giving them life i'm really interested in making sure la coloma is taken care of and i drive that ship and right now it's a tough ship to drive right but talk about obsession you know i i sleep maybe two and a half hours a night since since covid and i drive my wife completely around the bend I don't eat breakfast or lunch. I have dinner with family. I do homework. I run kids to hockey and, and gymnastics, and I'm downstairs in my lab, pushing, 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 pushing. It feels like walking across Antarctica. How, uh, how
2: do you do that two and a half
1: hours of sleep? Yeah, I just, well, I do these mini naps during the day, like in, literally in the chair that I'm sitting in to talk to you. I just can bend down. I sleep for 15 minutes. I wake up and I get to the next meeting because I know it won't last forever but I'm chasing a dragon right now. And if you let him go, you might not be able to grab it. Right. So it's when you're in that throes of, of the mechanical side of an invention and, and you're working with things that no one's ever worked with before you, you, you feel like you're going to lose the genius thread. So you you can't stop because if it, you know, it's like maybe it's the same for like Brian Eggers, right. Great book, you know, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Like he, he knew that if he slid up a second, he would lose the threat. So he just kept hammer on his keys mm. and it turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful work. And so I kind of feel that way.
2: I know you've been super involved in, you know, philanthropy and other, you know, social causes uh, in your career.
1: What are some of those
2: things that you've been working on or have worked on and that you, uh, you know, truly, truly support and know really believe in that could change the world because i know that for you one of the things that clearly is a purpose for you is making an impact not only you know on the world but also just in your life to your you know immediate circle of people uh so talk to us a little bit about that and you know would yeah. love to hear more about it yeah.
1: well yeah i mean why you do it you know like i i shun the words philanthropy and all that you know i think it's more just decency you know i i I'm very aware that if you get the opportunity to create another human, that you want to inject, you know, decency into that person, right? And you get this opportunity when you create a company. It's an entity. It has the legal rights of a human. So what are you going to inject into it? And I think decency is one of the key components, you know, that they, they understand that if you do, you're doing well, you should look around to see what you can do to improve the conditions around you in the communities. Now we, a lot of that happens at the farm, but that's just, Hey, they're that's family. You know, they're the family, you're your trade partners. So you're going to do stuff there. You know, the rest is also, you know, you know, in a way you, you feel like you're triaging, right? So there's so much need around the world that there's so much stuff that's going the wrong way. And then you have to kind of get your priorities together. And the first one is for me, and it's key, there's 158 million children without family. I know I went into the foster system. You don't want that. Being alone as a child is a terrible, terrible thing. And, you know, so we want to do as much as we can to to chip away at that, you know, and I know that, you know, my, my kids are adopted and I didn't do that to save the world. I did that to build a family, but it means something to them because they know, they know what an orphanage feels like. So it's something we can participate with as a family, you know. Second level is hunger. And the third is just it's mental illness in America. So those three things just I have, I know those things. I know all three of those things. And yeah. I just think, well, maybe the universe has been kind to me because it would like me to do something about this as much as I can. So I will, you know, and you know, I know I had a good friend. I couldn't say mentor cause I never had one of those, but he became a good friend. His name is Ed Snyder and he, he was the owner of the Flyers, which is, you know, I mean, anyway, I'm a hockey guy. And he yeah. kind of started a company that became Comcast. You know, it's like, so he you know, he was really a successful, dude. And unfortunately, I was never <laughs> heard of Comcast. Never. What is that? So he, you uh, know, as you can imagine, he did pretty well in, in life. And he started uh, a, a, this youth hockey league. Now, so this guy has, you know, done everything. You know, he's done it all. And he's on his deathbed. And he said, that's the only thing I really did well. You know, and I looked at that. It was his family and what he was able to give other people. And I went, okay, I'm not going to wait until I die to do that. <laughs> right? I'm, yeah. like, I'm going to start now.
0: Yeah, I read a book recently, actually. Um, and one of the things, it was like a philosophical book. And one of the things, you know, uh, as every philosophical book sort of talks about is like the meaning of life and happiness and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that it sort of whittled down to was uh, contribution to others. Like that's yeah. what really brings you true happiness is being able to contribute whatever skill you have, whatever mindset, greater, big, greater, small, um, to a group of people. It could be in your own household. It could be in your own community. It could be in a whole country. Um, it could be anything. It's just like that contribution level that you're, you're actually able to bring something to the table that makes an impact in someone else's life, uh, yeah. for the better, hopefully. Um, is what really drives that happiness within, within yourself.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I gotta admit that I, 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 don't really remember ever going, wow, that really made me happy. I mean, but it's, I think that it's, it might, it, it might helps me make sense of the universe a little bit more,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, it, it, which, which kind of lends to contentment to some point, you know, the, and, you know, I's you know, I, I, I'm an atheist, but, You know, I, I, I've read a great deal about all the different religions and I do agree with one particular passage in the Christian faith that, you know, to those who are given a lot, much is expected. And I, I, that rings very true to me Mm. because you got to understand, I mean, there are times I just look out at stars and go, wow, shit, can you believe this? Can you really fucking believe that? I mean, this is crazy. Why? Why? It's it's part of it. Oh, sure. Yeah, I worked really hard. My grandfather worked really hard. My grandfather died poor. You know, it's like, and you go, hmm. A lot of it was dumb luck. But is it luck? So you go, why? And so I go, you know what? I'm going to do what those Christian people do. Because it's true. This, just, the world's unfair. Life is unfair. I know it because it's been unfairly good to me. <laughs> right? It's like, it. So, it must be unfairly bad for people who deserve more, so let's get this thing going let's start helping level this playing field out a little bit more and i yeah. i I'm not asking my government to do it, and I'm not you know doing any of that. I'm saying maybe you should play your role, maybe that's why that's awesome yeah i mean todd i'm I'm
2: sure we could sit here for hours on end and talk to you about La Colombe and your journey and everything in between, but obviously, you know, your story is so inspirational to us and I'm sure everyone who's listening is going to take something away from it for sure. And if they don't, they should listen again so that they take something away Mm -hmm. from it. Uh, but you know, I guess before we sign off, you know, for those that are thinking about starting something or those that, you know, are as obsessive as you were with food and culinary, the culinary scene and with that coffee bean, how, how would you advise someone that was, you know, or is 27, 28, 30 years old, even older or younger, what would you tell them right now? If they had some inkling of an idea, uh, you know,
1: what's your, what's your, what's your advice? Well, so you're, you're, you're talking about going on a grueling trek. So the first thing I would do is tell you to empty everything out of your backpack, everything out of it and only put in the essentials. I mean, to give you an idea, when I when I climb mountains, I'll take a toothbrush, cut it in half. You know, I mean, you want to be stripped down. And if you find that you have a huge load already that you can't put down, then I would rethink it, right? If you have four kids and a giant mortgage, you're that's going to be really hard. But if you strip it down, if you expect to carry in that backpack a beautiful lifestyle and you, you know, with Instagram ready lifestyle and start it, you're, it's going to be really hard. You have to have really strong legs for that. So I always say, strip it down. Strip down everything. Put off everything. you got to feed the children before you eat, and your children is your company. And if you start with that mindset, you've just increased your, your probabilities of succeeding by 10. Mm. You will take less risk if you think that way. Don't worry. It'll get past. And trust me, trust me. Like I don't live that way anymore. You you will make up for it later. <laughs> like you're yeah. like later on. Yeah, it'll be hard. Like you don't even remember what coach feels like. And that, that right <laughs> and you, the that you know the, you're postponing some of the gratification, but it's going to be so beautiful, and you'll have complete control of your life, and that's just Absolutely. something glorious. But break it down now. Stop. Just get rid of it. If you if you have a car, sell it. If you have a sofa, sell it. If you have a TV, sell it. Get rid of all your shit. Get Just break it down. You got books from college, sell those. Just like sell everything. You want to be able to move in on a dime. And you just strip everything down to its core. Mm. Yeah, I, I love it. I think mean, it's such timely
0: advice. And I, I, this whole conversation I've gained so much out of, and it's so different than anything else we've done, any other uh, other interviews, just because I think your mindset is so unique and special. And um, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that you are where you are today. And I'm sure these are all things that you've learned over the years. But, um, you know, just like the way you approach your work and your life, I think it's something that everyone can take away and apply to whatever they're doing. And so we can't thank you enough, uh, you know, for, oh, for, you. for hanging out with us and sharing it and, um, you know, all the best to everything you're working on now. And
1: uh, we can't wait to see what else you do next. All right. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate the time. I really do. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you.